everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me, as always, is my Buffy the Vampire co-host, who is walking me through all of the trauma that all of these high school kids are going through every week. Like, a new kid is dying? Like, what kind of high school is this, Kaylee? I don't know. They're certainly living a, a unique existence, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it. I'm now into season two, and I was telling you, Kaylee, that, you know, this must be like the residual theme of the entire thing, that terrible things happen to you, some worse than others. And obviously for these kids, the worst possible things in the world are happening to them that will have repercussions for their entire lives. Well, yeah, well, at some point, we're going to just going to have to have a Buffy episode because definitely the symbolism in Buffy is that these vampires and all these horrible things represent other truths of growing up in high school. I'm very excited for you that you get to experience it for the first time. And I'm also very excited for me because one, I get to experience it with you. But two, we have a podcast that we're doing today. And today we are joined by Joanna Wagstaff, who is the on-air meteorologist, seismologist, and scientist for CBC News. She's been covering national and international weather and science stories since the summer of 2007. And she's hosted three award-winning CBC Vancouver podcasts, Fault Lines, 2050, uh, Degrees of Change, and the one that I have listened to and thoroughly enjoyed, Uncover, Bomb on Board. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Let's start off. I uh, When I was thinking about meteorology, I was actually thinking about being in junior high and doing like a meteorology unit and talking about like weather and clouds. Yes. Is that how you got into meteorology? Was it a grade seven thing? Did I just miss out on an alternative future for myself? That Actually, it, it's a great question. I really got into being interested in the science of how the earth works exactly that in my high school science classes it was the geography and geology classes where sort of learning all the cycles of the earth earth's processes and how they all fit together it was just sort of like a puzzle piece coming together and i was particularly interested in the extreme events you know learning about the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the earthquakes and that was always in the back of my mind. So I, I stuck with the science. And then when I learned you could actually study that in university and, and maybe even make a career out of it, well, that was the rest of the story. And there's so many sort of facets to severe weather and the, the earth sciences. So there, there's a lot to choose from and you never really get tired. Okay. I'm, I'm curious because something that I think about a lot when I think about it, the weather and probably it's somebody who like wants to go camping and is like staring at the weather forecast days in advance. It's famously unpredictable. How do you deal with that unpredictability when trying to track these systems? The unpredictability is really exciting, but also uh, meteorologists get a bad rap when it comes to how unpredictable the weather is. And it's changing at like warp speed. I mean, even just a few decades ago, you know, the old jokes that would come with, and I'm only going to say this term once, the uh, the weather girl mm -hmm. and the weather man. Mm -hmm. You know, the the jokes that they're allowed to get the weather wrong 50% of the time. I mean, that, that's really changing. The science is, is becoming more precise as our models and data are becoming more precise. That being said, the intricacies of it means that we're always going to have variability when you really scale down and we're talking scales of meters rather than kilometers. And when you're talking very precise locations, like someone's backyard or where they're going camping versus an entire city. So yes, there always will be variability. And I think it's just really important, especially now with our audiences getting smarter and, and understanding those variabilities more. I think people are generally uh, you know, understanding variability in science in general more. So I think as long as we're transparent about those variabilities and about those uncertainties and we communicate it in a way that people understand, then 
then we won't get Slurpees thrown in our face, basically. Oh my gosh. Well, that sounds fun. <laughs> Slurpees in your face doesn't sound particularly good. I, I'm curious okay. because you were mentioning, you know, the data, like we have so much yeah. more data. Who's compiling that data? Where's the data come from that you get to deal with? This is one of my favorite topics in meteorology. Yeah. Big data is such a huge part of meteorology and climatology. And we're only as good as the data we have. We're getting data from a lot of traditional sources. So whether observatories around the world. And, it, and it's amazing that meteorology is one of the first scientific fields to really share that data across borders. The uh, United Nations created a meter meteorological sort of sector to share all of this data. So a lot of the observations comes from airports, you know, stations that'll tell you on an hourly basis what the temperature, the pressure, the winds, precipitation, but that's just at one particular point. So then we got satellites and that was a huge game changer, you know, about 50 years ago, we were able to actually see the data from outer space or the clouds from outer space. Uh, radar is an added layer and um, also upper air soundings. We used to get all of our data from releasing balloons high up in the atmosphere a few times a day. And now we're actually adding sensors to aircraft. They're taking off and getting more and more data. And the future is incredible. I mean, there are studies and we're very close to actually getting data from people's cell phones, from umbrellas. Basically, the more information we have about the weather is doing now, anywhere, at any point in the earth, the better our forecast will be moving forward. That's incredible. And actually that it, it highlights for me, I was actually trying to figure out the average temperature and the amount of precipitation total for a, a year, about a decade ago. And uh, I was looking here in Vancouver and I noticed that there were a number of stations collecting data, but that they weren't collecting data. Like some places were doing it daily. Some places were doing it monthly. Some places just had yearly. And then like the dates were all different. And I was like, where, where do I get it from? Oh yeah. That can get very confusing. I think this could also, you know, maybe like a, a Buffy episode and then a very obscure weather <laughs> stations in Vancouver through the years episode. Oh. Or weather in the Hellmouth. The weather in the Hellmouth is very odd. Sometimes it snows out of nowhere and it makes no sense. <laughs> yes, that is true. So, I mean, yeah, we can dig deep when it comes to weather stations. There's some fascinating stories. I mean, most of them were operated by human up until even just a decade ago, and now they've all gone automatic. Uh, which definitely, you know, comes with its caveats. So the the world of weather data is changing sometimes for the better, but also sometimes for the worse. So let, I want to take this back a bit with you, Joanna, and you studied meteorology, you started to nerd out about all of this data, <laughs> and then have now transitioned into being a broadcaster and being a public face communicating all of this science. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that story and what interest you to get into this field? Yeah. I mean, I was always interested in, in sort of how enthusiastic I was about the science that I was learning. And from a, from a pretty early age, I mean, my science was my favorite subject in high school and then doing a, a geophysics undergrad and then a meteorology uh, postgrad, sort of getting the fullest picture of the earth processes that I could. I was always more interested in trying to communicate the things that I found so exciting to my sort of non-science friends. So I realized that science communication is somewhere that I wanted to go. I wasn't sure if it was working for a university or uh, a journal, but I, but I wanted to help people understand why science can be so exciting. And it was after 
my uh, undergrad in geophysics, I actually got a summer intern job, probably the coolest intern job, uh, in my opinion, at the Ontario Storm Prediction Centre. So Environment Canada's summer severe weather forecasting office, where we're actually forecasting for tornadoes, severe thunderstorms. I mean, it was, you know, the, it was like the James Bond summer of weather. And that's when I realized how important getting the message out to the public was. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the job. And while I was doing my meteorology, CBC, was looking for a behind the scenes meteorologist. So I was just finishing my my certificate when uh, they were looking for somebody behind the scenes. And I, I was working the 4 a.m. shift until about noon and then rushing off to York University campus to finish my exams. So they were pretty intense long days, but after after about six months, they asked me if I wanted to try being on TV. They gave me the 2 a.m. shift so that uh, you know nobody would notice when I completely froze up. But I, you know, I've really enjoyed all, all the opportunities that CBC has allowed me to have and, and allowed me to expand that role from just, you know, meteorologist to science communicator for the station. Yeah. And obviously with the podcast that Kaylee talked about, you know, those amazing, um, you should be really proud of them. I mean, they're really great. Thank you. And, you know, obviously tackling probably, you know, Earth's biggest problem right now. So you study Earth. Climate change obviously is one of our biggest issues, which you've gone into with your podcasts. And then last year, of course, a big moment for you, you decided to, you know, go on mat leave, have a baby, you've gone away <laughs> and you're still just at the end of that mat leave now. And there's been some events mm -hmm. uh, in the world. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your mindset now, now that you have taken this break from being a public science communicator and this pandemic now, and now just about to go back into being a broadcaster, what your mindset is right now? That kind of hits the, uh, the nail on the head for what has sort of been all encompassing for me, other than you know, the joy of my little son, Wesley, I've been thinking so much about uh, this, this new world that we're in and having this time to be with my son and to sort of be away from my job. I mean, this is, if anyone else has children is listening, the hardest job there is compared to the one that I was doing. But yeah, thinking about the world that I will return to has, has, um, has, you know, made me emotional at times. I mean, yes, we are dealing with a, a global pandemic and we're coming back to a, a bit of a question mark. In fact, I think I'm going to be coming back to, to shooting from my own home. I'll be doing my uh, broadcast from here. But on a, a much bigger scale, I mean, we've seen the world come together for this pandemic. And, you know, we, we've had a glimpse at what the world can look like when we come together and make sacrifices. And, that's exactly what we need for climate change. And, and so I come back with hope that we will all see what, what we can do when we work together and make these sacrifices because we will get through the other side of this pandemic. And I'm hoping that, you know, we'll sit back after that and ask ourselves, well, what can we do next altogether? But even more hopeful, I think, is the spotlight that has been shone on science and the fact that, you know, for the most part, it's the scientists that are delivering the messages and it's the, the scientists that politicians are looking to for guidance and it's the scientists that we're getting to know by name and, and looking to uh, for, for information. And I'm, I'm hoping that that spotlight will continue to be shone on scientists when it comes to climate change. And, you know, I don't want to be too, I don't want to be naively optimistic. I, I do understand that climate change has taken a bit of a back burner and that does mean a lot of, of projects and incentives are being put on hold. But personally, having this this little guy in my life now has has really added this extra layer emotionally for me. I was uh, sort of angry before about the way things were going and, and our lack of speed in responding to climate change. But now there's also a level of sadness and, and wanting 
you know, wanting to get this done for Wesley, as, as cheesy as that sounds, it really is true. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. So when we're thinking about climate change, what what do you think is sort of one of the big challenges in actually enacting change? Because like you said, we actually do need global efforts and there have been initiatives and, and some more successful than others. But what do you think is sort of the biggest challenge moving forward? I think it has to come down with huge, large scale changes. It has to be a systems change. And I think that means buy-in from every single individual, every single business, every single community. But we are talking about a systems change, you know, flipping what we know on its head as far as how we operate on a, on a daily basis. And I think, you know, for some people, that change will come when they're personally affected by a severe weather event or an event brought on by climate change. For other people, it's it's when friends and family are affected or when they see something happening in the news. Again, my hope is that we, we've all seen what we can do when we come together and, and, and you know, pause our emissions, our greenhouse gas emissions, and we're, we're already seeing the impacts of that on our carbon emissions for the first time ever since the Industrial Revolution. We've seen that pause show up in the data. And, and I hope that's, you know, the push for us to, to make those big systematic changes. Okay, so you mentioned greenhouse gas emissions. What are, what are some other contributors to climate change? Are there other things on the radar? Or are greenhouse gas emissions the number one thing? And that's just where we should be putting all our focus. Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. I mean, greenhouse gases is certainly the biggest driver of climate change and the sort of human caused input of that into into our environment. But it but it goes hand in hand with this big bubble, this you know system science. And I think when we when we think about reducing our our greenhouse gas emissions, and we think about reducing our carbon footprint, that also goes in hand in hand with all of the other things that are impacting our environment in the natural world. So things like urbanization and thinking about how we interact with the natural world around us and thinking about uh, how we manage things like forest fires and ecosystems. So carbon isn't everything, but you know, if we think about fixing that problem, a lot of the solutions means that we, we fix a lot of the problems. I think one of the concerns I have, Joanna, and thinking where we might be next, because the argument against how to tackle climate change has largely been around whether it's humans that are the cause or if it's just a natural process. You know, there's that sort of like that small segment of people that acknowledge, yes, there is some change happening, but, you know, it's really kind of like not the humans that are at fault. So what may happen after this pandemic if the numbers don't bear that out? Is there a danger of that um, that narrative being pushed through? I think the idea of the other side or the the climate deniers having having a loud voice and you know in this this world that we're living in where fake news is is definitely a real problem when it comes to figuring out the truth to any story. I think that is something we have to consider. I'm not worried about the data not telling the story. We're already seeing some early publications even just after a few months showing that drop. And what's interesting is scientists all around the world are able to work together on this accidental experiment in a way that we've we've never been able to do before. We're we're all seeing this drop around the world and scientists are communicating in, in a new way. So I think we will see some pretty telling papers and, and studies and conversations come out over the next few months. But you're absolutely right. I think the question about how to address people who don't believe in the science or aren't getting the right information when it comes to the science is, is going to is, is something that I've been thinking about for years. And, you know, I go back and forth on the right way to address that. Even for me, you know, for every every climate story I tell, I get a tweet from somebody, you know, trying to tell me that that, that wasn't right and, and linking me to a, a YouTube channel with with the other side of it. And 
for me, it's do I do I engage that person? Do I come back at them with the science? And I think it, it all comes down to whether or not that person is willing to engage. And I want to be somebody that is open to to having a conversation. But if it if it becomes political and if you know if there is no hope of of engagement there, then I think it's I think it's best to just focus on getting the message out to the right people. And I do believe that more and more people are unfortunately being affected by severe weather and are really truly believing that uh, climate change is an issue that is affecting everyone because everyone is getting affected. When you're thinking about telling that story and sharing that information and and all the different audiences that you can engage with, how's that look in comparison to when you're preparing to, you know, talk on the CBC versus like developing a podcast? What is your approach? Do they differ? Is it the same, just a different way you tell your story? Yeah, we think about this a lot. I mean, I think about this a lot and I know um, CBC thinks about this a lot, how, how to connect with the different audiences that we have on the many different platforms that are now involved in a day. I mean, we've got, it's not just the six o'clock news that we're, that we're uh, working towards this one-way conversation at the end of the day. It's constant communication on a two-way level throughout the day on social media. It's radio, it's podcasts, it's digital. And, you know, every different platform comes with sort of a slightly different demographic. And, and we, we also have our, our mandate that, that we're trying to, to deliver on as a, the Canadian public broadcasting service. So we do think about this a lot. And I think it does drive some of our decisions, but but I think for the most part, the the most important thing is getting is getting the facts out. And we do want to tell both sides of the story always and and you know talk about the people who are being negatively affected by this massive shift in in our energy. And there are always two sides to the story. But I, I think for me as a scientist and a science communicator, making sure to stick to the facts and not making it political is probably the most important thing that I can do. All right, let's get to some audience questions. Why is the sky blue? What's at the center of a black hole? Does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon it's based? The fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. Our first question comes from probably our furthest listener, Mike, all the way from Abu Dhabi. He wants to know about the endangered animals and uh, how they've been affected during the pandemic. You know, we, we've probably all seen the social media move where people are posting hashtag nature returns and, you know, dolphins and whales and harbors. And we visually and, and colloquially have seen, you know, nature make a comeback. But as far as endangered species, I, you know, I don't know a lot about the specifics, but I do know that um, it's not all good news. I mean, this this is just a very short pause. And in fact, as, as we're returning to the streets and returning to work and looking for that that new normal, I mean, this isn't going to have a lasting effect on, on that return. This is where we do have to make these big changes based on what we've seen we can do together. And, and unfortunately, I know there is some concern that a lot of the policies and treaties that were were being worked on when it comes to protecting endangered species are now put on hold. So there there is some concern there. But again, hopefully people have seen what just taking, you know, a small pause and, and a, a little sacrifice can can end up meaning for for nature in general and and ultimately have a, a positive outcome. Next question is from Kim who asks, will winter eventually be completely phased out or will we always have snow to some degree? Great question. Well, just thinking about the next, you know, few centuries, we will always have some kind of a a winter and we will have snow somewhere around the world. I mean, climate change is 
changing our weather at speeds never seen before in, in the history of our, of our planet. But it is changing them not all uniformly. I mean, we talk about global warming, but it doesn't mean that the whole Earth is getting warmer. It, it is shifting those temperature contrasts and making them more extreme. And generally, as the global average temperature gets warmer, that, that will, that will uh, remain true. But the impact that it has on severe weather events um, are different all around the world. So in some cases, we might actually have more snow and bigger snow events. But generally for uh, the sort of mid-latitude levels um, all around the world, it means we will have less snow and maybe some years where parts of the world who used to have snow won't see any snow at all. For example, here in Vancouver, you know, our local mountains, even in the next 30 years, are not likely to get any snow. There will definitely be years where we won't see any snow and eventually we'll we'll just remember the days and look back at you know archival footage which which is a sad thing but there will always be severe weather events and most of the snow we will get will come all at once and probably as bigger storms bigger blizzards that have a bigger impact but we just won't see them as often so i'm at first i was going to make a joke about because i'm from edmonton folks in edmonton like momentarily rejoicing but I mean, a lot of the precipitation in Edmonton comes from snow. So what will that mean for, for those places that really rely on snow? This is, this is a, a topic that I, you know, I, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of the relationship between weather and climate change uh, before making um, my 2050 podcast. But this is one of the biggest takeaways for me is that climate change's impact on snow is probably the number one driver of the changes we will see here in Canada, because so much of our precipitation that is locked up in the mountains and ends up slowly releasing through the years and or through the months, I should say, and keeping our rivers and streams at a temperature that can keep fish alive, that can keep our saltwater at bay. I mean, the repercussions of not seeing that snow are huge. And getting that precipitation in more rain events and in more severe flooding events where most of it gets washed away, it means also lower water levels, which means sea levels can rise on the other side of things. So snow and the lack of it that we will be seeing is it, there is nothing more important for Canadians. And whether or not you're, you know, listening from BC or Alberta or Ontario, these places all get their fresh water from snow at higher at higher latitudes, whether it is the mountains or just higher sections of the province. And so that is going to be probably the uh, the biggest factor when it comes to our changing weather. Should we do a segment, Kaylee? Oh yeah, let's do a segment. So we'll start with you, Joanna. What have you been nerding out about? You know, we've all we've all had our binge-worthy shows during this time, and I have become obsessed with this TV show, Debs. Have have either one of you seen it? It's on my to watch list. Okay. So it's by the director of Annihilation. I'm a huge science fiction fan. Devs, it's sort of like Annihilation meets, let's see, something more character building. Um, The characters are amazing. But the science, I have gone down so many rabbit holes, including multiverse and deterministic uh, theories. And a lot of it ties into weather forecasting. Um, There's sort of this old school way of weather forecasting, which is called the deterministic way, where you have, you know, one set of initial 
conditions, you have all of the data points that you see around you, you plug it into a weather model, it moves it forward through time, and you interpret the results. So that's the deterministic way. This multiverse or ensemble forecasting takes you know, thousands and thousands of slight iterations of that same model run, and you end up looking at this sort of spaghetti plot or ensemble of answers. And that's part of the reason why forecasting has become so much more precise and so much better, really just in the past decade. So to see it play out in, you know, a science fiction TV show where, you know, it all came down to this, I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, researching some of these theories and, and realizing that maybe I can predict the future, not just for weather, um, was kind of cool. So if you want to totally nerd out on a great science fiction TV show and think about meteorology in the process. I would recommend devs. I've now I'm sold. I want to see awesome. it. All right. What do you guys got? Well, so we are recording this June 2nd. And of course there's a lot of protests going on in the States at the moment. So I've been really looking into trying to amplify some black astrophysicists because there actually aren't that many. And what I've been finding is some really, really interesting voices. And one I came across was Jedida Eisler. And I first heard about her because she gave a talk at a TED Talk in Vancouver about blazars. And blazars is just a cool word to say. But they're these super powerful jets that come out of black holes. And this was like the first time that I had learned about them. But then I realized that she has this whole other passion that's all about black STEM advocacy. And she gave this second TED Talk, which I found really fascinating, where she basically advocates for more black people in physics specifically and talks about intersections, this really beautiful metaphor about, you know, physical intersections being places where new ideas and new people come together. You know, she talked about the Arc de Triomphe in France and even the, the intersection in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, where, where there's been protests there. And, and then even in the cosmos where gas and matter come together to form stars and physics right now is lacking a lot of these diverse voices. And she wrote this op-ed piece in the New York Times, basically advocating specifically for more Black people in physics, because then we'll actually start to find some of the real change uh, that we need in the world right now. So I'm making this post uh, that's going to be on my Instagram very soon. Uh, you can learn all about Jedida Eisler on uh, my Instagram, Michael John Unger, and I'll post all of the links to her two TED Talks and to her New York Times op-ed. That sounds great. I'm really excited to see those. Uh, Kaylee, what have you been nerding about? Well, now, I'm not much of a birder. My eyesight is, as you know, Michael, not particularly great. <laughs> and honestly, if it's <laughs> not like a chickadee or a lilac-breasted roller, I probably have no idea what bird it is that I'm looking at. But this week, I've been nerding out about a series organized by a group of Black birders called Black Birders Week. And the initiative was started in response to racism Black birders face just trying to get out and enjoy nature. And the series is raising not only awareness of the challenges that Black birders face, but it's also sharing so much joy, like knowledge, and honestly, so many birds. There's <laughs> just so many birds. So we're three days in to Black Birders Week, and the first day focused on sharing the pictures and stories of Black folks in nature, and the second day was focused on posting pictures and facts about birds. So you can go scroll through uh, hashtag post a bird. I learned a lot about a lot of different birds. And um, today there's a Q&A called Ask a Black Birder, and I'm actually waiting anxiously to see if my question about what the nerdiest bird is, is actually answered. So my podcast recommendation is that if you don't 
already follow Black AF in STEM, head over there now. And even though uh, Blackbirders Week will be over by the time this airs, you can go and check out the daily hashtags and follow the people contributing to the series. And beyond that series, um, follow Black AF in STEM anyway, uh, because I'm sure that all their future initiatives are going to be equally fantastic. So that's my nerd out this week. I might even be a little inspired to find my old pair of binoculars and search out what the hell bird keeps singing outside my bedroom window every morning at 5 a.m. It's driving me a little bonkers. I also want to know the answer to what is the nerdiest bird. Right? Yes. A lot of people have opinions on like what is the hashtag best bird. Yeah. I would really like to know what the nerdiest bird is. Like is there is there any that look like they have glasses? Is it some owl? I imagine it's got to be some owl. I know. Or they're like really peculiar about studying an area before they you know, roost in it. I don't know. I'm interested. <laughs> it's probably crows, honestly. Or birds that like making lists. That would probably be crows. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to stay tuned for that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us uh, at Nerdin' About. Uh, you were about to go back on air. Uh, when can people see you back on the television? Start of July. I am back June 22nd, uh, 29th. It's very nice that CBC thought I deserved a refresher because my first day on, I would probably just be changing diapers instead of showing rotational system directions. So uh, yeah, beginning of July, I'll be back on from my home and I am looking forward to it. Maybe there'll be some uh, cameos from my little guy running around screaming in the back. Yeah. And do you have any more projects that uh, that you like to plug? Any more podcasts that you have brewing or books? Ooh, always, always stuff brewing. I do just have a new children's book out. Uh, it just came out last month, actually, called The Little Cloud. And uh, I did not write this for the record on maternity leave because I have been unable to even finish a hot coffee. I wrote this just before Wesley arrived and uh, it just came out last month. And it's the story of a little cumulus who always dreamed of becoming a hurricane. And the illustrations are amazing. So I'm really, I'm really happy with that and looking forward to uh, pop quizzing Wesley later. Well, it sounds adorable. Thank you. So you can go follow Joanna. You can read her book and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at NerdNightYVR or go to our website, vancouver.nerdnight.com. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, keep your eyes on the skies and on the data. 